Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding. We're a couple of bird brains looking for adventure and some birds. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. And we bring you this podcast to share our adventures with you and talk about random thoughts on other birding topics. Just a couple of disclaimers, we're not experts and if we discuss any controversial material, we hope you keep an open mind. But also remember that what we discuss, it's our own opinions. In this week's episode, we will be talking about our birding adventure to Orlando Wetlands and a bit about birding at spots that birding is not really one of their primary functions. Yeah, so do we have any birding news this week? Yeah, there's some interesting stuff this week. Um, Maine had its first record of a roseate spoonbill, which was discovered in um, some county that I can't pronounce, by Dan Furbish, and he found it by drive-by birding, which is amazing to spot a first record that way. Man, the the roseate spoonbills are all over the country right now, aren't they? Yeah, they're spreading out. Um, We also have one in Minnesota in Hennepin County that was found by Kevin Smith and then by a couple of other guys. So, yeah, they're spreading out. Um, There was also a first hooded oriole in Nova Scotia, and that was found by Alex, Burton, and Kathleen. Um, In Washington, they had a stellar week. They've had a painted red start, a Tennessee warbler, and a northern weedier, which is spread throughout Washington. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, a Bermuda petrel was spotted recently by Nick on a NOAA survey um, on the Gordon Gunter off the continental shelf off of Massachusetts, which would just be amazing to see. Um, lastly, we wanted to share some podcast news with you all. One of the reasons we started this podcast was because we do a lot of driving. And when we aren't listening to the ABA podcast, Signcast, because we're big Seinfeld fans. Yeah, big fans. <laughs> and also, wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, we talk. And I thought that people might enjoy the conversations that we have. Some people may, some people may not. Um, but since many of them are birding related, we thought we to share them with everybody. Um, anyways, this week we drove the four and a half hours down to Orlando from Tallahassee and we talked about what direction we hope this podcast goes and why we're doing it. We had some big picture things. So that led us to pencil up a purpose, which is the following. Hannah and Eric Go Birding seek to empower future and current birders to appreciate and advocate for the conservation of birds and their habitats through ethical wildlife watching and AVA tourism. This is a working statement and may change, but it helps us um, with a direction and a vision for anything we do in the future. And it also tells our listeners what we're really about. It's kind of a mouthful, though. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm used to in organizations, so (laughs) you have have to be very specific. Um, So for this week's adventures, we're talking about our recent trip to the Orlando Wetlands Park. So just a little bit of background on this location. It's primarily a wastewater treatment facility. It was constructed in 1987, and it's a wetland that was used for regional wastewater facility that was constructed in 1979. And that was constructed to consolidate wastewater facilities and expand available sewer capacity. And these man-made wetlands, that's what's fed by the regional treatment facility. The wetland property is just over 1,200 acres and was a former pasture. The system was designed to handle 35 million gallons of water a day, and the water is moved through a four-foot diameter pipeline approximately 17 miles to flow out into the 17 cells in the three different wetland communities in an effort to remove any of the residual nutrients that were left over after the wastewater treatment process. The nitrogen and the phosphorus are the main things that they're looking to remove there. 
Cool. So the ecological communities that are present in the wetlands are deep marsh area, mixed marsh and wetland prairie, and hardwoods, so cypress swamp. And this um, promotes plant growth, but it was also planted initially with over 2.3 million aquatic plants, including 200,000 of them, uh, which were trees, to help create the wetlands. It takes about 40 days for the water to move through the wetlands from the beginning to the end, and its journey takes it through these ecological communities and the different cells due to the gravity flow. So it's a little bit higher on one end, a little bit lower at the bottom. And it leaves the wetland park through a canal and flows into the St. John's River. I know wastewater kind of worries some people, but in the past I I worked for a little while as a wastewater uh, plant operator, and I can assure you that Treating water as a final treatment like this is very safe. The outflow is sampled daily and is reported every every month. They have to file a monthly report um, on everything that happened, everything on all their samples. Um, on average, the wetland removes approximately 64% of the total nitrogen and 74% of the total phosphorus of the initial phosphorus that came in through the influent um, through the wetlands. The water that leaves the wetland is typically a higher quality than what's found in the St. John's River anyways. So basically what he's saying for people who don't know anything about wastewater like me, um, it's really clean water. It's it's good to be used for drinking water after that point, right? Yeah, after it would they would have to draw it off the river and then treat it for drinking water. One one more treatment for drinking water, but it's pretty much it's it's good to go. It's good to eat. Um, The Orlando Wetlands Park was open seasonally for public use in the 1990s, but now it's open year-round from sunrise to sunset. And they even host a wetlands festival in February, which sounds like it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, it would probably be really really fun to go there when it's a little bit cooler. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Uh, So getting to our visit there, uh, we we prepped a little bit for this visit by uh, following the Wetlands, um, the Orlando Wetlands Photography Facebook group and the Friends group page. Uh, we requested some information on there and asked if somebody, if anybody could give us some ideas of things that we shouldn't miss, things that we should uh, look for while we're there. And uh, the volunteer group, there's a, there's a few individuals that were super knowledgeable and went ahead and just gave us a ton of information. And it was kind of nice to see that there's such a tight knit group that's invo- heavily involved in this park. So uh, we showed up at the park just after dawn. We checked out the lay of the land and head onto the trail. First impressions, it was beautiful. There were palm trees all over the place in these wetlands. It was just gorgeous. From the trailhead, it doesn't look like a whole lot, but you walk a quarter of a mile down the trail and it opens up into a huge expanse of wetland cells, trees, palms, trails, all that. And it's a gorgeous sight. And as the sun rose over the lake, it was even more beautiful. Um, as I've said in the past, I'm not great at reading maps and translating them into my head. So when we looked at the map, it looked like the big pond was had about a mile trail around it. No, it's closer to seven miles. So we decided to head down it for a little bit, not the whole seven miles, and then try to make it back in time for the tram tour. Yeah, so right off the bat when we got there, there was birds pretty much everywhere. Right inside the gate, there was a uh, white ibis right there. We were hearing uh, black-bellied whistling ducks flying over. We saw a bunch of herons and egrets and vultures all around within within minutes of getting there. Um, there was a bunch of flooded-out palm trees that serve as woodpecker and owl and wh- black-bellied whistling duck habitat. And really, black-bellied whistling ducks were everywhere there. It was, it was a paradise for them. 
And on the other side of the trail, um, from where all that was, there was a bit of a forest and we were able to knock off a few, um, forest species like red-bellied woodpeckers, vireos, wrens, and other passerines. Yeah, but pretty much the super exciting thing for me is at the point where we were about to turn around, we saw up in the top of one of the palms, a pileated woodpecker, my favorite bird out of all the birds, out of all the birds I've seen so far. <laughs> Um, it was just hanging out on the side of a palm tree. It was it was about 800 feet away, and I have really terrible photography skills, and our camera's not <laughs> not the best, so I was not able to get any worthwhile shots of it, unfortunately. But we still experienced we it, We experienced right? the woodpecker, yeah. <laughs> we breathed the same air. <laughs> um, we decided to start heading back towards the front so we didn't miss the tram, and on the way back, there were kingfishers flying about, which is the first for the season, so that was pretty exciting to watch them. Oh, yeah, it's good to be that time of the year. Yeah. Anyway. Um, while watching the woodpeckers and black bellies, a vehicle that I describe as an extended golf cart pulled alongside us. And for the first time since this podcast, we were noticed and by someone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jim pulled alongside us and said, Eric, Hannah. And we said, hey, you must be Jim, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was the volunteer that had corresponded with us on Facebook the most, I think. Yeah, so he and Bob, um, another volunteer, were cruising the trails looking for birds. They urged us to hop on because there was a barred owl that was seen in a small stand of trees nearby. Um, hanging out with these guys, it was like cruising on a Saturday afternoon with your buddies. They were giving each other crap and really just seemed to be enjoying the day out at the wetlands. Oh, yeah, they, they really like it out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we hopped off. I'm sorry. We hopped on and we were off to see the owl. Yeah, well, we didn't see the owl, unfortunately. <laughs> It must have got Nancy waiting for us. Uh, so we sat there, talked talked about where the owl was for a little bit, looked looked at some of the pictures that uh, Bob had, and then uh, Jim turned the, turned the cart around and we headed back to the nature center to see if anyone else was going to join up um, for the tram tour. In the nature center, Jim gave us an overview of how the wastewater system and wetland work together in the history of the landscape. They have some great models that were created that just give you a great look at how everything really works. Um, it was a great way to start off the tour and have a better understanding of what we were to see. Yeah, so once once we um, once we finished up um, inside the nature center with Jim sh- showing all his models, uh, we headed back out on the trail. He he took us down a little ways to where the water flows basically into the one of the first cells um, where the vegetation was the thickest, and that's where we saw our first pig frog, which we'd been hearing him for a while and kind of kind of thought they were bullfrogs, but I guess bullfrogs and pig frogs pretty similar in sound yeah we learned something new yeah <laughs> um jim took us to some of the highlight spots around the park we saw lots of baby gallinules juvenile herons and more um there's actually a rookery on an island in the middle of the lake uh it's the big island on the east side but there's no way to access it to see a whole lot um without a really good scope which none of us had but jim was telling us about a, a proposed boardwalk that will eventually pass near it apparently they were going to put it right next to it they're going to put it through it i think is what the oh, initial is that what it yeah was? In, initial plans that he talked about but they decided against going through it luckily yeah i think right alongside it would be a fantastic view yeah um, we talked to Jim about life, retirement, photography, and he's an extremely talented photographer that regularly posts his sightings and his pictures to the Orlando Wetlands Facebook page, so you should definitely check it out. He really got into the park and photography after his retirement, and you can tell that he just loves giving these tours and being out on the trail. 
Oh yeah, he was he was having a having a blast mm-hmm. sh- showing us around one of his favorite places, I guess. Yeah, and it's so much fun to hang out with people like that because you really get into it too and start to love it when you see somebody else love it. Oh yeah, yeah. So we we got about I guess I guess it was about the halfway point of the tour. Um, and there there was a family that was that was out real close to that where that rookery was. Um, and they were they were hot and tired and didn't want to walk anymore, <laughs> so they so they hopped on the tram to join us. Um, they they weren't much into birds, but uh, but Jim knew just the thing for that. There was an alligator nest that he knew about that was a, li- a little further out on the trail, so we we drove out there to um, to take a look at that. the The mama gator was just was just in the bushes, just probably yeah, she was right nearby. Yeah, real, real, real close by. I think she was about a six foot long gator. And before she got too agitated, we we left. But every, everyone there got a bunch of bunch of little photos of it and and got to see the see the nest. And he he explained about how. How long the nesting process takes and all that. Yeah, he's very knowledgeable on that. Oh yeah. And on the way back to the nature center, Jim decided to show. Uh, J- Jim decided that instead of just talking about the demucking project they have going on, he could show us a little bit about the process because we all know that Eric would be super interested in that sort of thing as a former wastewater technician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he knew that the crew wasn't really working that much today so, that day, so he decided to swing past and show us. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I guess we didn't mention it at all, but they are doing some maintenance in the park, a process that they call demucking. Um, I think not just they call it, I think it's just called demucking. <laughs> That's the word for it. <laughs> That's the word for it. Um, they, they use uh, heavy equipment to remove um, the settled settled debris and vegetation, which in this case is about six feet. That's uh, that is settled into there, and that settled debris reduces the quality of the wastewater that's being treated. So it doesn't it doesn't treat it as well as it should get treated. So this is kind of a um, maintenance tasks that needs to be done occasionally in, in wetlands like this, um, wastewater, wastewater. Tre- wastewater treatment wetlands like this. Um, since the park is first and foremost a last step wastewater treatment facility, the qu- quality of the effluent is the number one priority. So even if it disturbs the wildlife, these processes have to happen. The d- demucking process looks pretty terrible for the wildlife. <laughs> it's they, they have to go through and basically just tear everything out so they all just the dig down like six feet right yeah they d- dig down six feet they pile all that dirt into piles they're all not muck and mud into piles to let it dry out mm-hmm. and they haul it off once it's a little dry so they don't have to carry the weight of the water while, that while seems they're hauling pretty it simple yeah it's it's a, it seems like it's a simple process but it's time look, <laughs> it's time intensive and it looks very destructive <laughs> but it's but it's something that uh the wetlands recover real quick especially since it's completely surrounded on all sides by all the native vegetation and the birds are right there. They just have to finish what they're doing and get the equipment out of there. And then the birds will be right back. Yeah. It'd be really cool to see what it looks like once it's uh, flooded again. Yeah. So, um, the cell they were working on, like you said, had about six feet of muck and old vegetation and they were getting all that out. Um, it was, it looks like it's a big project. Um, but Eric is essentially a child. So we were rounding the corner and watching the tractor fill up a dump truck. And I could tell Eric wasn't even looking for birds at that point. There were like cool things all over the place, little baby gallinules and, you know, Eric's looking at the truck tractor. Yeah. Well, Running an excavator is a lot of fun, and this guy's excavator was huge. It, it, it looked like it would be a ton of fun. To so you run. just want to play with big toys? Yeah, it would. It would have been a lot of fun. Oh my gosh, is uh, anybody else's husband like this? <laughs> um, anyways, from this whole experience, I think we need to give huge props to Jim and Bob. These guys were very professional, knowledgeable, friendly, and perfect hosts. We were blessed to have such great guides. 
And one of the things I did want to mention um, that we were able to experience at the site was the silence. I am so used to being in the city and hearing all the city noises that it was fantastic to hear nothing. Well, until the cicadas woke up for the day. Uh, I really only noticed it when Eric was trying to take a sound recording for the podcast, which you guys heard at the beginning of the podcast, and a bumblebee flew past my face, and all I heard was a little bumbling from him, (laughs) and I didn't hear any cars, any planes, anything else. The sounds in nature are really one of my favorite things to experience that we don't get experienced too often. And I really used to be into this app. It's called Record the Earth, which uh, you can assist scientists by taking short recordings and identify what you heard in those recordings to help create the world soundscape. Not only are these silent moments important for us so we can reconnect with nature, but also for wildlife. Think about a chickadee in a mixed flock. They have to be able to listen for the sounds of the other animals in case of danger. Um, If planes overhead or cars overwhelm the soundscape, it could be an unnecessary difference between life and death for these birds. Yeah, it's it's really important. And part part of being able to listen to everything around you is, uh, I guess, birding by ear is something that we kind of take advantage of a lot. <laughs> the um you you can't always see the birds. So birding by ear is something that uh that we we do a lot of just listening and listening for bird calls and at any any moment you hear all sorts of things. You hear the cicadas mostly here down here in the south cicadas like crazy. You'd hear the the herons with their gargly gargly hops or whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to call their sound that they make, the growls. The chickadees, the woodpeckers, and the frogs. There's just so many different sounds out there that you can't always hear over cars. But when you get out into some place that's more natural, it's just, it's suddenly so loud with just nature sounds. <laughs> yeah, and it can definitely be overwhelming for people if you hear way too much at once um, to be able to pinpoint a specific sound. But the best way to get started in birding by ears is to go outside for a few minutes and just listen. Start racking up the sounds that are familiar with you. If you know what a cardinal sounds like or a crow, start listening for those. And once you have that down pat, start ignoring that and start listening for the other things that you might not recognize. Yeah, one of the things that I learned, like when we first started, like really trying to bird by ear, and I, I can't remember who I heard it from, but what you want to do is you, you want to be able to see see whatever it is making the sound and that can really solidify it in your mind. So if it's a frog making the sound, if you watch the frog make the sound, if it's a red-bellied woodpecker, if you watch the red-bellied woodpecker make that sound, you'll it really solidifies so you can associate it with the visual of what it is with the sound of what it is. And I prefer using mnemonic devices. Uh, those These are technique, techniques that aids uh, information retention and retrieval. For example, tohis, eastern tohis, they say, drink your tea. And I just remember that. And so every time I hear tea, I'll, you know, instantly remember it's an eastern tohi. Yeah, to drink your tohi tea. Drink your tohi tea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and since starting this podcast, and then uh, last year when uh, I n- met uh, Nathan Pippolo, who wrote uh, um, a book all about this, a stuff. book all about birding by ear and birding <laughs> sounds. Um, I've, I've really started to appreciate spectrograms. And it, those are visual representations of the spectrum of the frequencies of sound. And they're also called sonograms and voice prints. See, so you can you can learn a lot and figure out a lot just by looking at them and becoming familiar with uh, the shapes that different sounds make on a, on a spectrogram. 
But getting back to soundscapes, um, which is a sound or combination of sounds that forms and arises from an immersive environment. And this can include things like uh, animal sounds, weather, and even human-created sounds. The disruption of environmental sounds can result in noise pollution. A perfect example of this is the use of sonar in the oceans and how that can confuse and harm whales and dolphins. Just it's so loud. Yeah, it's too much noise. Yeah. The the U.S. National Park Service is actively working to protect soundscapes and acoustic environments in our national parks. Uh, The National Park Service feels that the character and quality of the soundscape influence human perceptions of an area so you're going to think differently if you hear things differently like when, when you're in an area and providing a sense of place that differentiates it from other regions is is an important thing yeah so every place has its own sound um, so I encourage you to get outside and take a few minutes to enjoy your soundscape because all sounds are unique and they occur at one place of one time and can't be replicated the exact same way. And if you want to contribute to the citizen science component of this, download Record the Earth and get started. Yeah, and so since, since we visited a wetland for this podcast um, and this wetland that wasn't created for uh, the purposes of bird watching, it, it kind of made us start thinking about uh, what other locations that you bird at, but birding wasn't the reason that the place was built. It's more of like a secondary purpose. Yeah. Or even tertiary. Yeah, just second, third, fourth, fifth fifth <laughs> reason for a purpose or a place existing. So Nicholas Lund of the Birdist Rules says, Birders are probably the only people begging to get access to a wastewater treatment plant. We go to landfills, we go to graveyards, we go to backyards, we go to military bases, we go to industrial buildings. We see snowy owls at airports. Birds don't have maps. And they just go wherever the heck they want to. If the habitat's there, they're going. So this is what we talked about in our car ride. (laughs) A lot about alternative birding places is what I'm calling them. Or unusual birding or weird birding. Whatever. So um, we thought of our own examples of these locations. But I was curious to see what else there was out there. So I posed the question on a Facebook group that I follow called World Girl Birders. And if you haven't checked it out, do so. It's, It's great. Great group of people. And had a huge response. Facebookers listed the following sites that have been uh, birded that that's not their original intention. Yeah, wastewater plants uh, like the one that we visited uh, were were mentioned by Lindsay, specifically Hornsby Bend in Travis County, Texas. Uh, Sherry, Carol, and Nancy mentioned those too. Judy suggested a a wastewater pond in Lakeview, Oregon, where she's seen a Bonaparte skull. Pretty good. Yeah. Um, Nancy, Jessica, Kimberly, they all mentioned birding cemeteries. Yeah, we birded a cemetery once. Uh, I guess we birded a couple times, but the, the one main time I can think of is over, over there in Houston. Um, we were looking for a, a great peewee that had been spotted, and it, it just felt uncomfortable and disrespectful to be walking around binoculars. <laughs> yeah, there was a funeral going on. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, Crystal on the Facebook uh on the Facebook page, she she commented that she had gotten permission um, to from the widow to bird during a funeral, or to bring binoculars during a funeral. Apparently, the deceased would have wanted it this way. Well, that's nice, yeah. respecting their wishes. Um, Debbie mentioned birding while watching house hunters and golf tournaments, which I really started to do uh, birding while watching TV, which has got to be like the laziest way to bird. <laughs> um, I noticed in Anne with an E, which is on Netflix, it's a really good show. They oversaturated the show with Downey Woodpecker calls. You walked in when I was watching an episode. Yeah. It was like every 30 seconds there was a Downey call. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen, I don't, I don't remember where it was that I saw it, but 
somebody on Facebook recently was talking about just inappropriate calls for for habitats. Yeah. That it, it would be like a downy and there a downy woodpecker and they're in the middle of the desert, or it'd be like a loon and they're just not not even in the right side of the side of the country for that type of loon. Just like um, your favorite scientist, what's his name? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, and yeah. the whole Titanic thing. Yeah, the Titanic and the star maps were all are all wrong. It's because you know when it sank, you know the hemisphere, so what the stars <laughs> should look like, and they were wrong in the movie Titanic. I'd say let's like call out every single movie, but I think that was kind of done with the red tail hawk call and the yeah. bald eagle. I feel like it's been done. It's been done. But yeah. maybe, you know, maybe somebody could do that. And so other places that some, some people have mentioned, uh, Reba, Patty, Nancy, and Judy, they all mentioned landfills, uh, specifically the Brownsville dump, which we visited last November, and we got... The Tomalipas crow for its return to the United States. I know. Return it had to been the like, ABA. What, like eight years or something since it had been seen there? It had bas- basically been extirpated or thought, thought to be completely extirpated and now all of a sudden back. Stroke of luck. Back, back at the Brownsville dump during the Rio Grande Valley Burning Festival. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, and the Chihuahua and Raven, um, we saw that while we were there too. That's that's a, that's a valley specialty, pretty much. But it's an easy bird to see there at the. It's dump. an easy at the at the dump, yeah. Um, and that dump was actually it was made famous, uh, kind of famous, famouser, <laughs> famous, famouser. Um, in in the movie The Big Year, um, everyone's favorite movie. Yeah, every every birder's favorite movie. Yeah, we saw it opening night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did see it opening night. <laughs> we were the only ones there. That was pretty much empty, weirdly. Um, Amy suggested trailer parks, and she mentioned Benson Rio Grande Valley State Park, which is now a birding haven, but it started off as campground. Um, and right outside of it, there's a ton of camping spots, so it's it's a big hot spot for birding, but it originally did start off as a campground. Uh, last year, when we were down at the Rio Grande Valley Festival, we got an alert on the way home back to Houston that someone had seen a long-tailed duck not far from our route, which just happened to be at a small pond in a trailer park. So don't overlook the trailer parks. And Angel commented about a subdivision flattened by a hurricane, uh, like the Baytown Nature Center in Houston. Well, this well, this is now a managed nature center. It wasn't initially built as a uh, as a nature center area. It was just a subdivision, and then it got just flattened and destroyed and instead of rebuilding because it was now in definitely a floodplain area they just decided to make it a nature area works out yeah um laura said rest stops like the painted bunting at the falfurris rest stop uh this rest stop has had many planted live oak trees and other uh, more appropriate trees planted all throughout and this gives drivers an opportunity to get out of the car stretch your legs but it also gives migrating birds a stopover spot and sometimes rarities like red starts and that gives them a little oasis to hang out in the middle of what's basically a desert so that's that's made for people to stop, but it happens bird to be a, a good bird stop, too. <laughs> yeah, um, Amy mentioned uh, burned areas, um, which we, we visited some burned areas uh, back when we were in Oregon. Um, we went on a, a woodpecker hike, or a woodpecker drive, through a bun- bu- up and down a bunch of logging roads. We went we went to a couple parks, too, while we were out there, but, uh, but we saw, saw quite a few, a huge, huge variety of woodpecker species. Yeah, what we have like eleven woodpeckers that day? Yeah, it was. It was. I think there's thirteen there, and we only had eleven of them, so it was. It was close. Yeah, it and if you haven't lot. been to the Oregon Shore, uh, I'm sorry, Oregon Woodpecker Festival, that does that same route, and it was pretty fantastic. Yeah, um, Ava mentioned that she likes to um, watch birds while she's stuck in traffic, um, checking out the ephemeral ponds in Northern California. Um, 
we're used to people fishing in those stormwater ponds in Houston, which is just weird. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there was one near our apartment um, when we were in Houston that had ducks in it pretty frequently. Yeah, we should have stepped by and saw what was out there. Yeah. Um, Shaz sounds like she had a possible awkward birding experience at a nude beach in a national park. So just be aware of where your binoculars are pointed. Yeah. Be, yeah, be careful where, where you point them. Yeah. Um, Laura spotted a peregrine falcon over Wrigley Field, which is a pretty good spot to see um, birds just in general. You, you have a big open open roof to look through, kind of to funnel your vision up that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, do you remember when that guy, the, the pitch hit a bird and it was just, it's like a poof. Yeah, that was that was pretty horrific to yeah. see on national television. It was weird. Yeah, uh, if you want, if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, Nancy commented with a swift watch at an abandoned mattress factory. And uh, do you remember when we went to the Chapman Elementary School in Portland mm-hmm. to yeah. watch the Vox Swift come into the chimney? That was pretty miraculous. Yeah, that was that it was, was impressive. It was like this huge funnel of Swift of Vox's Swifts just just coming in. Right at sunset, and we, we were hoping to see, like, some peregrines or some red tails or something trying to get them, but we didn't see any. No predators that night. No. Nah. But what about the Purple Martins roosting um, at that that shopping complex just south of Houston? Oh, yeah. That was it, was, it was pretty much the same thing. It was crazy. It was, like, we're, we're there one minute, there's nothing, a handful, 20, 30 grackles just hanging out in the parking lot, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, just... They start flowing in. It's just like this river of Purple Martins just flying in, and we're standing right in the parking lot of a shopping center. Yeah, and in both instances, the local Audubon chapters, they hosted watching parties because it's such a such a rare or it's such an unusual occurrence to be in the middle of a city or in the middle of wherever these birds decide to take the opportunity to roost for the night. And so the, the bird watchers follow them. It's pretty yeah. cool. And I, I guess some, some in a lot of these locations, they roost in the same exact places every year. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pre- pretty well known where they're at because the, the birds know exactly where they're going, yeah. how, how far they can fly each day. And so they... They end up in the same place all the time. Um, Debbie mentioned an army base, which I guess that's kind of kind of odd. Going going to an army base to um, to bird, um, but Lindsay said that uh, Fort Hood was one of the best places she's ever birded. Guess we got to give that a try sometime. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Ollie somehow found pigeons at eighty meters below the Earth's surface in a mine. Well, that is certainly unique. Yeah, that's crazy. Pigeons. They're, they're everywhere, I guess. Yeah, everywhere. They, they, they made it everywhere. We'll I, see them in space soon. Yeah, we'll be be up on the moon. <laughs> Pigeon fly past. <laughs> Pigeon will fly past on the moon. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, um, another one. Uh, Cynthia, um, at, she was birding at some uh, fly ash ponds, which I guess that would be pretty hazardous. Yeah, I for think you want to wear people. a dust mask yes. or something. Yeah. Um, Cheryl birded around a couple of super fun hazardous waste sites, which sounds yeah. kind of scary. I might consider, there too. yeah, I might consider like a trip to Chernobyl. Like I'm a little bit into dark tourism, but you know, maybe just that one. Yeah. Um, Carol mentioned, uh, an odd trip to a homeless camp, um, on Oahu, but I guess she didn't see any birds while she was there. <laughs> Probably saw something else though. Yeah, I guess. Um, Ma birds pocket parks in New York City that are block-sized lots that are set up as little uh, parks, which is pretty cool. You know, city birding, we've all done that. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, a sod farm, which um, a couple of people mentioned, uh, that's where we saw our Life for American Golden Plover just yeah. northeast of Houston. So sod farms, um, regular farms, <laughs> dairies, these are all great spots to see birds too, especially cowbirds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots of cowbirds. Um, oh, so... I guess the one the one that that win, wins the comment contest, or, <laughs> if, if you want to call it a contest, uh, I like that. Um, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Uh, Dragon, Dragon, Dragon. Sorry if we're pronouncing it terribly. Um, but uh, he he commented with an article that he wrote about a trip to India where they went to a cattle carcass dumping ground. And they were looking for some vultures, so um, we'll we'll leave a, a link to his article in the show notes. But it was it was a pretty interesting read. It's very um, like graphic. Yeah, I guess I guess, the, graphic, I guess the yeah. language. I mean, it's not like the pictures are super graphic. No, it's they just weren't a terrible. lot of dead cows. Yeah, but like just from the words, I could like smell it. Yeah. I was immersed <laughs> in the experience. So thank you for that. Before I ate dinner. Um, so thanks to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to everyone that commented on the post. It's really interesting to see the different in unusual places that you all have birded. Pretty much all of those places weren't created for the purpose of wildlife viewing. They were all, they had some other purpose in mind and wildlife just shows up because if you build it, they will come. <laughs> um, and some of the places like sod farms, they're great places for shorebirds. It's real short grass. They keep it short for the sod. Mm -hmm. The shorebirds love that. Um, and the landfills that, uh, like Brownsville and some of, some of the other landfills that people mentioned, uh, great places to find goals. You want to, you want to find a goal. If you want to try to find a rare goal, <laughs> look at the million other goals that are going to be at a landfill and you'll, you, you'll probably end up finding something, something Maybe. exciting. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so something to remember, something important to remember if you choose to go birding in a non-traditional birding location is that you're a visitor there. There may be heavy equipment or hazardous conditions that force you to leave or to be restricted to a certain viewing area from a a greater distance than you'd like to be, but always read the rules and follow the signs. Yeah. And we've pretty much every non-traditional birding spot that we've ever been to, they were help. They were happy to welcome birders. As long as we let them know that we're there and what we were doing. That way we didn't confuse anyone or we're <laughs> parked in some, some place that we shouldn't be. Cause a lot of times if you talk to like at the landfill, you talk to them at the front desk they were happy to let oh, us in. at Brownsville, Those yeah. guys were awesome. They yeah. were like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of birders already up there. You'll see them. Yeah, so they, they, were, super, they were super excited to, to see us there. But, like, mo most of the places, they're at, least, they're at least open to the idea of us birding their place. Because who, who, doesn't, who doesn't want someone more excited about their property? Like, that's, that seems to be a, a pretty common thread. Um, places, but a lot of these places are also private property, like trailer parks. So that's definitely someplace... Do you want to talk to the owner of the trailer park or the property owner or someone in the office before just kind of walking around with binoculars? <laughs> yeah, I think that would probably get the wrong thing, the wrong idea in people's heads with you walking around binoculars through a trailer park. It's like when we saw the burrowing owls, we had people stopping and asking us what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also like the colored plover that came up in the Rio Grande Valley, the, it was in a cotton field and the guy wanted to spray his field or prep his field for the harvest and birders were not following his requests. So please just make sure, like Eric said, and I said, follow the rules, read the signs, make sure everyone is, is happy to have you. Um, and oftentimes people that have a good birding location and aren't birders get really excited when somebody 
um, else other than their typical clientele are really excited to be out at that place. So it's an exciting event for everybody. Oh yeah, especially when there's like a rare bird or something there. Because mm-hmm. even even the non-birders that happen to be at the location will get super excited because the the mood. Everyone's excited. Everyone's binoculars are swinging back and forth as they're trying to find it. Everyone's a buzz with activity trying to trying to see it. And even non-birders you hand them, hand them a pair of binoculars and say, "Hey, take a look at this." They'll they'll get they'll get pretty excited about it. So that's that's exciting. And just by just by visiting these places, not not just when there's rare birds, but just in in general, v- visiting these places um gives them more value um in, with by engaging with different people and I'm both of us we're we're huge on tourism uh with bir- with birders visiting these locations that aren't true birding parks. It give um it makes the community really bigger, I guess, at these places. Um, the average person wouldn't really want a wastewater treatment facility next to them, but you know, like a wetland that happens to be treating wastewater, why not? Yeah. I mean, if you don't, it's all about words too. If you called a wastewater treatment plant, maybe, maybe some people would be hesitant about it, but you call it a wetland and you call it Orlando Wetlands Park and now (laughs) you want to live right next to it. I want a house next to it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in our show notes, we will include links to our eBird checklist, record the earth, and a couple other articles we found about non-traditional birding locations. Anyways, get out there and bird traditional and non-traditional spots. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something. Uh, Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding on Instagram, on our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding, or email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. Tell us what you hated and what you liked. Um, so please share with your friends and help us build a following. <laughs>